You're listening to Comedy Central. It's a beautiful film, you know, and people love Disney movies, but it's also like the timing of who the movie's about. You know, right now the Asian community in America is facing one of its toughest times where hate crimes are just skyrocketing. Many, you know, prominent Asians in Hollywood saying, hey, we need to fight against this. Everybody needs to step up. And I've seen people on social media saying, let's work together to do this. What do you think the significance of a movie like this is for kids and for people who just watch movies and might have a subconscious understanding of what they're seeing? Exactly what you said. You know, when you make a movie like this, you cannot control the environment in which it's going to be released in. You've absolutely no idea what kind of world you're releasing into. So to be able to be a part of this movie right now when the news is a... a Con- like, you know, because I'm lurking, lurking on, on the internet. I know. <laughs> it's a constant barrage of attack after attack. And I know for me, like, I just really hope that this is a moment where we can come together as a community and really recognize the pride and the joy that comes with celebrating where we're from. You know, we live in a world telling us we need to be afraid and we need to hide and we have to be ashamed. And to be part of this movie that is so clearly celebrating instead of hiding feels like such a proud moment for me. And um, I hope that it's one that the community can celebrate. I am not a young Asian girl. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I know. But I found that I wasn't alone in connecting with the story in this film. It really is a love story that brings back everything we associate with high school and life and maybe even things we deal with today in society. Do you think the movie did justice to the book? I think so. Um, I hope so. I feel like the book is all about that kind of warmth and being cozy at home and being with your friends and family and first love. And I think the movie does capture that. Right. You, You chose to be a part of the story and that was one of the conditions And included in that is you said you wanted Lara Jean's character to be played by an Asian girl because that's who was in the book. Why was that so important to you? You know, that's part of why it took so long to get made because people didn't understand why that was important. And for me, it was like, that was what her spirit was, was that she was Asian American and it didn't have anything to do with the plot, which is why people were confused. Because they were like, well, you know, as long as the actor can, you know, get the spirit across, then it's, you don't care about age or race. And I was like, but her spirit is Asian, so it's important. Right. And, um, you know, it's really about, it's not her whole identity, but it's like a part of her identity. A lot of the time, people think that, you know, inclusion in stories is about just telling the stories of the color of the people in the movie. And so when studio executives said to you, oh, but she doesn't have to be Asian because she's not doing Asian things, you felt like it was about more than that. I mean, I've never seen a movie, um, a teen movie, very few romantic comedies even, where the lead was Asian. So to me, I wanted teenage girls to have that experience that I never got to have. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of yours from uh, Silicon Valley and now... Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now you've got the book and you've got uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which is coming out to much fanfare. People are really excited about this. Can you feel the buzz as well? I've been feeling it for the last, like, three weeks. We've been on this press tour. Yeah. And, and, and it's crazy. They're actually spending money on us, which is... 
which is amazing. Like, like we, we they, they sent out three teams. Each of us hit like three different cities, and the reactions from each city is amazing. You got right. the really heavy Asian populated cities, you know, like say Boston, New York. We expected a good turnout from them, but then when we went to like Dallas, and people still loved it, and I barely saw any Asian people in the audience. It was white people, black people. It's just such a universally fun movie to watch. Right. That. I'm just so grateful to see everybody enjoying it. It's really doing well. It has like, what, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Everyone is enjoying the cultural significance of the film. It's funny because Ronnie Chang is on the show, is also in the movie. And when he came to me to tell me that like, they wanted him in the movie, he like really undersold. He's like, hey man, so I might need to leave the show for a few months to go do this movie. Uh-huh. I think it might be a little bit big for like, you know, Asian, the Asian community. And he sold it like it was gonna be like a little indie movie in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and then I saw this come out, I was like, Ronnie, this is major, this is huge. And it really is because for 25 years, we have have not seen a Hollywood movie with a full Asian cast. That's a pretty big deal. Since Joy Luck Club. And I think going in, I mean, Ronnie probably wasn't underselling, like, cause we didn't know, we intellectualized it. Like we understood it's right. important. It's, uh, you know, statistically 25 years, first studio movie. But we didn't feel how special it was until we got to Singapore. When you got like the most beautiful, talented, funniest Asian people from all over the world. Yeah. You got Asian Americans, Asian British, Asian, Australians from everywhere, you know, uh, Ronnie, Asian Malaysian, right? right? Like, which sounds amazing, by the way. (laughs) Asian Malaysian. Asian Malaysian. Asian Malaysian. I'm gonna start calling them in the office and I'm gonna get a lawsuit. Uh, (laughs) The the, the movie is also great. That's what I enjoy Mm. is, you know, like oftentimes when people talk about diversity, people always make it seem like it's charity, but it's a great story and you play a character who like seems like the most fun ever. Uh-huh. Is it true that you you also try to go for the lead, like the really good looking handsome <laughs> lead? <laughs> Thanks for putting it that way. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, when I first got the script, not every day you get a script that's crazy rich Asians with a full Asian cast. So I right. talked to my manager, I picked up the phone right away. I'm like, guys, I know I'm usually the funny guy, you know, like, like the character actor, but let me, this is an important movie. Let me try out for the leading role, right. okay? And then my manager was like, look, Jimmy, I don't know how to tell you this properly, but um, they're looking for a good looking guy for this role. And uh, you know, here I am. There I am, so. Uh, yeah, but, you, but okay. you, you crush it in the movie because oh, you thanks. play like a Versace wearing mad party animal. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome to play that guy. Right. Cause you get to go as big as possible. So you just fill the screen with any energy you have kind of pent up inside. Yeah. Cause I think normally as, as functional members of society, you can't just act crazy. But, but with a character like that with billions of dollars and he doesn't care about anything. Right. He, he lives his life like as if it's lawless. So it's just so fun and freeing to play somebody like that. You also have a cast that is all Asian, but at the same time, really diverse. And don't get me wrong, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it covers every single aspect of Asian culture, yeah. but it is interesting that you said so many people come from so many different walks of life. When you're on, on set, did you feel that? Because I remember when Black Panther was happening, people were talking about how this, the set felt different. It was a new experience. Was Absolutely. it similar on, on Crazy Rich Asians? There was some kind of magic when we all just hang out, you know, eating dinner. I didn't have to explain, oh, let's go to a Chinese restaurant. It's like authentic, but like not that exotic. You can handle it, (laughs) you know? We were all just so much on the same page. We all just love the same kind of food. We all sang karaoke every night. (laughs) It was great. You haven't lived until you've seen Ronnie Chang sing Backstreet Boys. It's amazing. (laughs) 
Man, you are just giving me ammunition on Ronnie Chang. <laughs> Non-stop. Let, let's talk a little bit about the book as well, because um, I, I love how your book talks about your journey in America. How to American, mm -hmm. an immigrant's guide to disappointing your parents. Um, it really is a universal story that is all about yourself becoming an American citizen and the journey that you went on. Why, why do you think it's really been as difficult as it has been for you to understand the difference or the difficulty in duality? Being an American, right. but then also being Asian and staying true to your roots. I moved here when I was 13 from Hong Kong. 13 is probably a tough age for anyone finding themselves, but I was in a new country with a new language. I couldn't really speak English very well. And also one of the hardest things, aside from just making friends in school, was dealing with the pressure from your parents, the expectations of growing up Asian. Right. And they value um, obedience. They, 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 they value finding a real job, right? <laughs> Which like I'm say, obviously not doing right, right. now. <laughs> but, but in American culture, it's the complete opposite. We value independence and, and, and we, we value pursuing your dreams. Whereas my dad, ever since I was little, has told me that pursuing your dreams is how you become homeless. <laughs> So how do you, which one do I pick? And how do I go about doing this? When, when I started doing stand-up, like my, my dad thought I was crazy. He doesn't, he doesn't even know what stand-up was. Right. Like, we never watched stand-up in Hong Kong, you know? My first stand-up like, that I watched was BET Comic View when I came here. Right. And that was like a cultural experience. Yeah, I can only imagine. It wasn't just jokes, it was like about culture. Like when they were talking about white people do this, black people do that, I didn't know any of those stereotypes. Right. But that was like broad strokes of America that I learned from TV and watching these comedians, which is in a way culture tellers, yes. right? That's why I became really interested in doing stand-up and my dad still till today calls it a talk show. <laughs> which I guess I'm doing now, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm actually doing a talk show. You have a great book with a great story. Congratulations on the film. You talk about your success, the grind that came behind it, but then you talk about like just the experiences that you've had where, where someone, you know, many people in fact, tried to reduce you to just, you know, your, your, your factor. So they went like, oh, you, you're getting, you're successful just because oh my you're God. Asian, there's like, just because even you're a now, woman, there's just because like, you're pregnant. There's so many, there was a guy who, I, I won't name names, he's not a very successful comedian, so I don't even know if you would know who he was. No, I don't. But he came up to, he, <laughs> you wouldn't know, you're, you're out of there now. Uh, but he like came up to me while I was pregnant the second time, and he touched my belly with his like fat, sweaty hand, which is so gross to begin with. It's like, it's like, why don't you finger me while you're at it? This is so not okay. Like, just because I'm pregnant right. doesn't mean it's okay for you to touch my belly. And he was like, oh, so this is your shtick. This is like your thing now, right? And I'm like, I was like, getting pregnant is not rainbow suspenders. It's not a shtick. And then he was like, you're so lucky, Allie, because you get all of this attention because you're both a female and a minority. And I was like, yeah, because, you know, historically, that's always been the winning combo. <laughs> recognition and success. Oh, and he man. was like, and he was like, you know what I mean. Like me, I'm just another white guy. And I was like, be a better white guy. There's so many successful, there's like, there's Jimmy Kimmel, there's Will Ferrell, there's Nick Kroll, there's John Mulaney. I can name like, I could go on this whole show for like, 35 days. We'll do like another Naming, show like, just of successful yeah. white comedians. <laughs> just be a funnier white guy. Right. Like, that's it. This Netflix series 
has started off with a bang. People are loving it. Why the title, Ugly Delicious? Well, as you saw in that clip, I grew up eating really well. My mom cooked a lot of Korean things, and growing up in Northern Virginia, it wasn't that cool. In fact, I was like the butt of many jokes. So when I started cooking professionally, those were the foods that I never wanted to touch because I was ashamed of it or I just didn't want to like embrace it. And that sort of encapsulates a lot of the foods that I think are truly delicious, but may not, may not be cool or is, uh, looks good on a photograph sometimes, right, right, you know? right. like a curry is a perfect example. Bowl of curry is so good, but isn't something that's gonna be on the cover of a magazine. And for you growing up, your food was a part of your culture, but it was also something that people used to tease you about. Do you think that that's, that's a big part of food is the cultural identity that comes with it? Absolutely, because we're at a, a not a crossroads, but food is pop, more popular than ever before. And it sort of intersects so many different parts of culture throughout the world. Right. So in so many ways, you know, creating the show with Morgan Neville and Eddie Schmidt, we decided that food could be sort of a Trojan horse to talk about many of the great things in culture and many of the bad things in culture. Right, like for instance with um, Chinese food. Uh, There's an episode where you delve into Chinese food and it feels like it's less about the Chinese food itself and about how uh, Chinese people in America have had to assimilate and what what that means and how the food has had to assimilate in many ways to fit in with American culture. Like, what did you learn in that experience when looking at Chinese food on its own in America? I mean, it goes all the way back to when they came to work on the railroads and how they were marginalized way back then in the 1890s or so. And without getting too much in the history, I feel like as delicious as Chinese food is, and it's like the most prevalent kind of food throughout the world, it right. seems, uh, it's never been seen as like as cool as other European cuisines. Right. And quite frankly, I think that there's been a lot of sort of hidden racism in how people perceive not just Chinese food, like basically anything that's like different than the mainstream America, right? You see that with MSG or how people see like cheap meats in Asian restaurants, right. Chinese yeah. restaurants. And a lot of that's not true, right? They're just, um, you know, not even misperceptions. They're just wrong, right? It's interesting that you bring up racism with regards to food because those are stereotypes that you see, you know, rearing their ugly heads all over the world. You know, people go, oh, watermelon, black people, and, and chicken, black people, and they'll be like, oh, you eat this type of food if you're Asian, and you, you eat this. There are certain ideas that come from food. There are certain stories that are told by the food. There's an episode where you talk about fried chicken, and what I loved is in the story, you know, you're out in the South, you're meeting with people who cook fried chicken, white people who make fried chicken. Did you find that it was interesting to speak to people about where the chicken came from, how it came to be popularized, and how they saw the story as it related to the food? Absolutely, and I think first and foremost about fried chicken, it's a story that you know a lot of people don't know about. Everyone, I think, that eats chicken will find it to be a fried chicken to be delicious. Right. Like, again, the world over almost. But the story of how it was born out of oppression and slavery, for right. the most part, the, the fried chicken that we all most are commonly associated with, that's a really tough story to tell, right? And if we can't talk about fried chicken, how are we supposed to talk about other things that are problematic? Right, right, right. So, um, and going back to the, so the, the popularity of fried chicken shops, there's a scene where I'm talking to my friends, really, and um, questioning them, the same questions I'd ask, answer myself, and the reality is it's like, it's a, it's a responsibility that I think today in 2018 that we should know more about and we should talk about. And it's, uh, it's not easy to talk about. Right. I mean, I, I think you have to watch the episode because I think we're not trying to answer anything. We're just trying to start the conversation about right. that. Because it's just too dense of a topic. Do you, do you feel like that's something people could do, like at restaurants? 
like the waiter should have to tell you about the history of the food when they give it to you. So you should be like, what are you gonna have? I'll have the fried chicken. Let me tell you about slavery and oppression. <laughs> like this chicken over here comes from a long history of people being oppressed and you're like, mm, I'm gonna go with the rice. Can I go with the rice? <laughs> no, it's, it's not about that. I, I mean, certainly it could be, but we live in a world where there's so much information at your fingertips, like why not go down that rabbit hole right. just a little bit? And you know, there's a scene in, in that fried chicken episode where it's not about fried chicken, where I say to David Simon, great director of The Wire, where I'm like, hey, I would have a problem if someone that's not Korean starts making kimchi. Right. And he sort of smacks me down being like, you're an idiot, right? Like America is about cultural appropriation when it's done like very well, if right. that makes any sense. And I, I thought about that and I was like, man, he's absolutely right in the sense that the only way I'm gonna get this person that's making kimchi to appreciate kimchi is to let them go down the rabbit hole. Right, right, and, right. And maybe they're gonna be the biggest advocate of it, but if I'm there judging them, saying like, you can't do this, right. why, then I'm not making any progress there. So I feel the same way about fried chicken, and I think that I could have been that, that fried chicken shop down in Nashville because I love hot fried chicken so much. Of right. course, the first thing you wanna do is pay homage. But we, it's a problem sometimes, right? It's a, what happens if you start killing the very thing that inspired you? You grew up as a child who was adopted. Mm -hmm. uh, you were raised by white parents who loved you to the ends of the earth. But in this book, you talk about something that many people struggle with every day, and that is the relationship of being a child who is adopted, who is living in a transracial household. Why is that so difficult? I think um, it's just difficult, I think, given that a lot of the, first of all, a lot of people go into adoption not necessarily fully prepared uh, to talk about race, uh, which is, of course, crucial in a transracial adoption. Right. You know, like my parents, for example, went in and they asked a lot of questions of a lot of different experts, social workers and judges and adoption attorneys, and they were basically told, don't worry about it. You know, it's going to be okay no matter what. Um, you don't really have to talk about this. It's not going to be relevant. And of course, it very much was. Right, because you read in the book, and you write about how you, you had this experience where your, your parents didn't talk to you about race at all. It was just ignored completely. It's mm -hmm. never mentioned. And many people would agree with that. They would say, but yes, why, why should your parents talk to you about race, Nicole? Because they don't see you as a color. They, they're seeing you as Nicole, their daughter. So why, why do you think it would have been necessary or should be necessary for people to speak to their kids about race if they've adopted them? It's completely natural in a way for parents. Of course, it doesn't affect like their love for their child. I wasn't, like my parents didn't think of me as their Korean child or their adopted child. I was just their child. Um, I think what none of us really knew how to talk about so much, especially when I was young, was the fact that, of course, even if it didn't matter to them, it was going to matter a great deal to me in my life. It was right. going to matter other people would notice, they would comment. Um, and I think also none of us were really prepared for all the questions that we got, you know, moving about in the world, because we kind of stood out in my hometown. Right. Right. So often when I got those questions, I wasn't really sure, like, what to say, because in my life at home, it wasn't really acknowledged or spoken about. Your book takes us through such a painful, exciting, loving, wonderful journey where you begin to explore who you are and you have that yearning to find out the rest of your story. And, and that in of itself, I mean, you, you described it in such detail, is, is scary, but at the same time, really exciting. Why do you think it was so important for you to want to find who your biological parents were, where you had these parents who loved you so much? I had thought about it for many years, and really for me, what was the final push was when I became pregnant with my first child. Um, up until that point, I, I thought, of course, about what it would feel like to have a child and to share my life and my history with them, um, but I hadn't really thought about how being adopted would affect 
them, like what questions they might have. And I remember so vividly sitting like at my first prenatal appointment, getting all these questions about my medical history and like what my birth mother's pregnancy and her births were like, and I had no answers. Right. And I suddenly just felt like this deep sense of um, fear and inadequacy that this was information I needed to have, that my children might need to have. So that was really the final push. You went out, you searched, and you found your answers. Um, I don't want to give away a lot of the book, but there, but there is a beautiful connection that you made with a sibling who you discovered. Uh, your, your sister, I believe you have two, right? And a half-sister and a full sister, as you call them in the book, but, but you're very close to, to your sister. That is, that is a really interesting relationship to have, somebody who has been a stranger your whole life and let you, f you feel like you've known them forever. Yes, she's an amazing person. And a lot of this book really, it's her story as well as mine. Um, you kind of get both stories on a parallel, parallel tracks and then they intersect when we finally meet and find out about each other. Um, and she's just an amazing person. I feel so lucky to have her in my life. Um, my kids have always just known her because right. like we connected the same month that I gave birth. Um, but it's been interesting to talk with them about it just in terms of like they kind of take it for granted that like she's there, that we're together, that we have this family and these relationships we've recovered. Um, but really we had to do a lot of work and um, it took a lot of effort and a lot of heartache to put our family back together in this way. So it's not something I'll ever take for granted. It's a story about a character, Willis Wu, who is a man who just dreams of making it big on the big screen. Right. And what's, what's, what's beautiful and what resonates in the book is it talks about the challenges that he faces and so many Asian Americans and Asians in America have faced with being represented on screen in a way that is not boiled down to stereotypes. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's um, his dream. So Will, to Willis's story is basically that he, his job is to be a generic Asian man on a show called Black and White. And um, so, you know, everyone's seen Law and Order. Right. And you have the two leads in the front, and they're discussing the case. And way in the back, pretty much out of focus, is like an Asian guy unloading a van. Right. <laughs> I was like, what if you told the story from that guy's point of view? Uh-huh. In the Law and Order universe. Right. And, 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 I, and I started to get interested in this world and exploring the world because the view from the bottom looks different than the view from where the leads are standing. It, it really is powerful because you, you talk about in this book one man's journey, but, but really a lot of this book deals with how Asians have been pushed to the side in America and a lot of storytelling. You know, some, some people have argued, though, that, that Asians have it good, though, because they go like, oh, at least Asian people have the model minority thing to them, so they're, they're seen as less threatening and they're given more opportunities. But, but you have a different view on that idea. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think, you know, the model minority is just sort of the age-old strategy of divide, you know, divide and conquer. And mm -hmm. holding one group up justifies holding a group apart. And it's not just your sort of saying Asians have it good, you're kind of showing the other groups you could do it too, right? Right, right. And also the fact is there are plenty of Asians who have not succeeded. Right. You know, there are, the, the characters in this book are struggling economically, they're struggling to assimilate culturally. And I, that's a story that we don't see as often. We see in the media stories about Asian, success, Asian American success, but not always this story. In this book is, um, is a character who dreams 
of just getting to play the lead in a kung fu film. That's, that's what he's dreaming of doing. Interestingly enough, though, and, and I mean, I get why the character's doing it, that's one of the things that you say, like, always broke your heart in the smallest way when you'd be watching TV with your family, is you'd look up when you see an Asian person on the screen, you'd be like, wow, that's amazing. And then they would always be distilled into, like, a few categories. Like, why do you think that that affected you so much, especially with your children? Right, yeah, I mean, that, you, it's exactly what's happening now is that I'm a dad and I'm, my kids are old enough that we watch stories together and sort of, I had made peace with being, you know, watching Asians on the side, mm-hmm. but now they're old enough that I have to turn and explain to them, you know, why is that guy doing a funny accent, you know, or right, why, right. why is that person squinting their eyes and playing an Asian on TV? And, you know, there has been a lot of progress. We see stories about Asians, but we still don't see enough and we don't, I, I don't, I wanted to be able to, you know, explain to them. So I had to kind of work through it in this book. And, you know, for instance, I was recently watching the Golden Globes and I watched Aquafina get that award and right. my daughter was sitting next to me. And it was like, I felt uplifted and so did she. And I could see in her eyes that this was something that we'd both remember. And at the same time, we see things on TV where you sort of can't believe that that's still on TV in right. the year 2020. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.